Morning, Glory, and evening, Grace, America. It's Hugh Hewitt coming up to the hour that has become, in a very short few weeks, the favorite hour of the week for many of you, or at least you're telling me that via email, and that is the Hour of Hillsdale, the Hillsdale Dialogues, which I hold either with the president of Hillsdale College, Larry Arner, a member of their faculty, in the last week of radio that I do, uh, last hour of uh, radio I do every single week, Dr. Arn, welcome back. Good to have you. Good to be with you, Hugh. As is our, our habit, we begin with current events, and then segments two, three, and four, we turn to some text from the canon. Today we're going to cover four books of the, uh, the Old Testament, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, but we don't want people to run away, right? <laughs> <laughs> These are exciting books. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I actually, my friend Dennis Prager and I have had long conversations about Leviticus. And in the hands of a good teacher, it's actually pretty interesting. But I think it it has been something of a... A buzz killer for many years for people when they first pick it up. Well, part of it's like reading a public health instruction manual. <laughs> well, we'll come back to that. I want to do my current events first because there are three things I want to talk to you about. We may not get past the first, and this is the nomination of President Obama of former Senator Chuck Hagel to lead the Department of Defense. And and this calls into question a lot of things, uh, Larry Arndt, but what's your reaction generally to this? Well, the guy's a genius, right? I mean, <laughs> I mean has, hasn't he been brilliant? I mean, I, I've seen uh, freshmen in oral examinations so many times, right? And I have never seen anybody squirm or contradict himself as much as that guy has. Yeah, and that he will not provide the names of the countries that he's been working for. He can't recollect his speaking schedule. <laughs> <laughs> and and but this is the Secretary of Defense. This is the Pentagon, and I, I almost shudder for the country if we've dropped to the level where you can be a buffoon on national television and still be confirmed to run the wars. Yeah, he he. Uh, the word a low point. He's got deep reservations about uh, about putting sanctions against Iran, Iran, and and you know sanctions is the way the world works today, that's what you do when you don't really want to hurt them. You know, and, and that's an old problem, because because there were sanctions against Italy before the, the Second World War discredited the League of Nations, because the, Italy was attacking Ethiopia or Abyssinia, as it was called then. And the, uh, and, and the, the League of Nations went and negotiated with Italy. What is it we could leave off the list because you can't afford to do without it? And they settled on oil. And so Churchill wrote later, willing to strike but afraid to wound. Huh. Hegel is unwilling even to appear to strike. Yep. And these are guys who have threatened the extinction of another country. All the people in it is what they say they want to do. And they're looking for a nuclear weapon for that purpose. And he won't even put economic penalties upon them. Now, there is an unusual aspect to this, and it's going to come down to whether or not the Republicans are willing to filibuster the nomination. And uh, if they do, there aren't enough votes to confirm him because there are 40 Republicans willing to filibuster. But among the Republicans are John McCain and uh, the home state of Nebraska and Mike Jones. And you've got uh, Thad Cochran and, and, and maybe one or two others who are not going to filibuster. They say it's wrong. For example, like John McCain says, he's going to vote against him, but he won't filibuster. What do you make of that? And is that, it's just morally confused to me. If he ought not to be the Secretary of Defense, then you ought to use the tools available to you to stop him. Well, remember, Obamacare passed by a trick that prevented 
a filibuster. And the rules of the Senate are an old thing. And back in the day when we had a constitution and the founding was remembered, the Senate was to have been a long-term, thoughtful, and somewhat more cautious branch. And what remains of that is just these rules of the Senate, which the Democrats have trampled all over. And, and one of the rules is it's not customary, in fact, I think it's true that it's never been done, that a cabinet appointment by a president has been filibustered. So I understand why they're reluctant. It, given that, though, that it's the Department of Defense, we're not talking about agriculture or anything like that. We're talking about the actual, honest-to-goodness defense of the country. Uh, would that, if you were a senator, if uh, if uh, Carl Levin retired quickly and you were appointed by Mr. Snyder, Governor Snyder, to serve for a year, uh, would you employ the means to the end? Uh Mm, I don't know. Uh, I, I might not. I might not. And here's what the reasoning Now, that is interesting. Yeah. Well, here's the reasoning. The reasoning is, first of all, we have an outbreak of lawlessness in this country. And it comes of, much of it comes from the executive branch. And it's dangerous, you know, because there are forms by which we do things in this country. And we ought to be respecting those. That's one, one line of argument. I just made that. But I'll add a second one to it. A cabinet minister in the American government does, is not a policy, independent policy person. He, he's, he doesn't get to decide what to do. He serves at the pleasure of the president. And so Obama's intentions are clear enough, right? He said them on the, you know, he got broadcast on the radio what he said to Medvedev, Medvedev of the Soviet Union about more flexibility about strategic defense and such. So it's the man in charge who's the real problem. And so if we get a fool for a secretary of defense, I don't know, maybe that's good. <laughs> oh, but I think of these poor men and, this, and the women who are in harm's way, and they need a commander in chief about whom uh, they have some certainty of conviction, and they need a secretary of defense over whose operational control over their lives they don't think is random. Yeah, it's it's. It's You're a right. Bad. It's a bad thing, and it's a judgment call. But I, you know, so I think I might be. I, you know, I would be reluctant for sure to use the filibuster against him. Okay, I'll come back to that. Let me ask about the second issue, which is the sequester. Today, or actually yesterday, Thursday, there was a story that the Republicans are beginning to fray apart on the sequester. That there are a lot of Republicans who don't want to wound the Department of Defense, and that they're. They're willing to cave in order to do this to keep the Department of Defense from ruinous cuts. What is your uh, counsel to them? Uh, well, first of all, um, so that's a big subject. And, and um, the Republican Party has got to find some things to make its bones on to establish itself. And it's got to be the party of cost-cutting. And that's a very unfavorable ground for it to fight on every time it comes up. The fiscal cliff was potentially disastrous for them. The, um, the uh, shutdown, anytime there's a shutdown, the government thing, the president gets to talk more than they do, and he gets to pick what parts of the government get shut down. And this sequester is difficult because he's holding the Defense Department hostage. And so, you know, whatever, by the way, whatever in you makes you willing to use the filibuster to get rid of Hegel 
should also make you reluctant to see the Defense Department. Exactly, and that's where I am. Yeah. I want to use the filibuster, and I don't like the sequestration. I'd probably cave. Yeah. So, now, on the other hand, this is true, right? So I get to make a two-handed argument because I don't happen to be in the Congress. <laughs> um, on the other hand, it's the case that... So here's what, here's what I believe about American politics. First of all, nothing really good is going to get done in the next four years. It's possible that if the 2014 election goes wrong, we're going to have additional increased disastrous legislation. I don't know. But what the Republican Party should be doing is it should, be, uh, it should become the party of limited and constitutional government. And that requires two things. One is they have got to be willing to cut that's, and prove that they will do it. And the second thing is they've got to be the, the party of equal rights, and that means they must banish all talk of race and class preferences and discrimination, and they must condemn that talk. That means no Republican president should do what Mitt Romney did, which is run as the candidate for the middle class. He should be the candidate for the American people treated equally. Now, this sequester is not a grand opportunity to do that. They have to start in speech. So whether I would cave or not, I don't know. Uh, again, you know, that's a prudential call that you got to make in the time. But, but, but here's how I would decide it. Let me put it this way. And I don't know enough to decide it this way. I, I would suggest that maybe you don't either, Hugh. Um, I would guess that there are many things in the Defense Department that could be very seriously cut sure. without harming the national defense. You bet. Are those the things that are going to be cut? Because if they are, more power to them. You know, Winston Churchill, my hero and subject of mine, if you just count up the years in his life, and they're very long, he was in Parliament for 55 years, 60 years, in ministerial office for about 50, there are more years when he's trying to cut the defense budget than when he's trying to expand it. That, that is uh, not an argument between us, because if it were not a 10% across the board cut, I think it could be managed, but it is. That's why it probably cave. Now we come back to the great books. Four of the first five books of the Old Testament when I return with Dr. Larry Arn. Hugh for Hillsdale to sign up for these podcasts. Hugh for Hillsdale.com. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt with Dr. Larry Arn of Hillsdale College, our weekly walk through one of or many of the texts of the canon of the West. Dr. Arn, before we begin on Deuteronomy, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, I wanted to ask you, because one week from today is the application deadline for Hillsdale College, February 15th, hillsdale.edu. Who ought to go there and finish that application this week? They may be thinking about it, or their mom and dad might be urging them to look at hillsdale.edu, but who do you want to apply? You need two qualities, willing and able. (laughs) Uh, So the willing and the able. Willing to what? The answer is, if you want to know and, and become deeply informed about the ultimate purposes of your life, about the great controversies that are raging in the country today, it's a lot of work, but that's what we do, and at our place, everybody does it. And because of that, it's a college. The word college means partnership, something a bunch of, a bunch of people do together. And this is a very high thing. Also, you can pick a major and you can qualify yourself for a career, but that is in that, and we're good at that, and our kids get jobs like crazy, and by the way, 
we're cheap compared to any other college rank like we are. But it's but it's a fact that the main thing we do is equip somebody to talk about subjects like the ones we're just about to talk about, you and me. And does it matter at all that people have waited till late in the day, that there's only a week left? Because often people will assume that last to arrive, first to be rejected. No, it doesn't work that way. We, we gather them all up and we look at them all impartially. And uh, if you're interested, send an application. We'll pay attention to it. Uh, it's a really good idea to call us after you send in the application and say, look, I just want you to know I'm really interested because, remember, willingness. If you go to college, you've got to do the work. We're looking for kids who really want to do the work. Now, let's do the work of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And I I begin by saying this is really the story of Moses, but much, much more. If you missed our conversation about Genesis over the last two weeks, that's available at Hugh for Hillsdale. How do you want to approach this, Dr. Arn? Well, so the, the, the Pentateuch is five books that comes from a Greek word, which means five vessels, something like that. And these are the core of the Old Testament, the Torah, the part most studied. And we talked about Genesis last time. And the other four books, you can understand them in a group. Uh, we can leave out Leviticus if you want to, because it's full of public health regulations and stuff. It, uh, they really are public health regulations, much of it. But they, they do some really great things, and by the way, some monumental things in the memory and story of the Western world. Uh, because, of course, the escape of the Jewish people from, from Israel, that is, you know, that in, in any, all over the, both the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, the New Testament, those facts are so often rehearsed as the great things the Lord has done for us. They were, they were led into Egypt by Joseph, and they were led out by Moses. And God did wonders to make that possible. And, of course, those wonders are magnificent. You know, it's, uh, you go watch the movie The Ten Commandments, but better read Exodus, because they're fantastic. And those, so that's one thing that happened. Let me begin by, by interjecting. Yesterday, for two hours, I discussed with Mark Oppenheimer, who's the New York Times religion columnist and authored a cover story for SI, and we debated it for a couple of hours. And, and he's a, a conservative, capital C Jew, who began our conversation by, you know, flatly saying, this didn't happen. There was no exodus. The Jews weren't captured in Egypt. When you, when you encounter that among a college student, does it matter to how you read the text? No, uh, because the text is the story of a people and their purpose and their relationship to God. And it, 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 it's, for my, in my opinion, it doesn't matter whether the earth, the heavens and the earth, were created exactly as they are said to have been created in Genesis. The, the point is that God made them, and for a purpose, and in an order. And it doesn't matter exactly what happened in this story of the Jews. It becomes their story. And remember last time I said in the covenant with Abraham that the Jews have understood themselves from, from earliest times, from the timing, from the writing of the earliest parts of the Bible, to be a people carrying a message and doing a duty for all mankind. Right. Now, in, in Exodus, obviously, we come up on Moses, and Moses' story is, is of abandonment 
and renewal and recovery and then encounter with God. This is this is the story that has launched a million sermons in Christian churches, uh, uh, Larry Arn. What is it about him? Is it his historical significance or is it in his character? Well, it's both, right? He, like uh, One of the ways I understand Moses is there's this fantastic sculpting of Moses by Michelangelo in, in Rome. And, and uh, it's a great thing to do to look at the Pieta by Michelangelo nearby in St. Peter's Basilica. And then look at Moses. Moses is a symbol of strength and gravity. He, he looks like thunder itself sitting there, carved in marble. And Moses, remember, is of the tribe of the priests. There are 12 tribes of Israel, and the sons of Levi, one of the sons of Israel, or Jacob, uh, are appointed to be the priest. And they're a class apart. They don't have land in the, new, in the promised land. They're given a city or cities to live in, but they live at the behest of others, and they are ministers. And Moses is the greatest of the ministers of God, to God's chosen people. Now, the uh, the statue to which you refer, I believe it's in St. Peter in the Chains, and it's this massive, vast, he's not very welcoming as a leader. And, and from that, do you generally uh, reason to the idea that most leaders have to be that way? Uh, well, yeah, he yes, he is. But, of course, there are other aspects of Moses' character that also show what it's like to be a leader. Moses does a lot of justice. And he pleads for his people. And, you know, so often it's not the, the duty of Moses to be bringing good news. <laughs> you know, it, uh, God takes the people out, but there are enormous risks. And, and their, their lot suffers because of his ministrations in the beginning. They're, they're forced to work harder. They are, uh, many of them are killed as he fights to get them out of Egypt. And then he takes them out in the, in the desert, and they reveal their great character of the Old Testament. They are stiff-necked people. <laughs> and while he's up there on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments, that's the second thing I want to talk about, in the, in, at least in Exodus. While he's up there on the mountain getting that, they begin to worship other gods. And, and he breaks the commandments. But they're, and, and so what is the result of that? They are required to wander in the, in the desert for decades, learning to get the slavery out of themselves and to live a harsh life and become a strong enough people to be God's people. Learning to get the slavery out of themselves. Yeah, that's what I think was going on. I think that they were slavish. They had been enslaved for a long time. And so what do they do? When, when uh, well, I'll say it after the break. When, when Pharaoh doubles their burdens, they cry out against Moses. Yeah. At oh, well, least we got security here. That is fast. I'll be right back with Dr. Larry Arn of Hillsdale College. Hugh for Hillsdale, if you want the previous Hillsdale Dialogues. Two more segments coming up. Don't go anywhere. 34 minutes after the hour, America. It's Hugh Hewitt with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, in our Hillsdale Dialogue, with which we complete each week here on the radio. We're talking about Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy this week. Uh, Dr. Arn, we went to break, and we are talking about the stiff-necked people called out for double burden from Pharaoh. They got mad at Moses. And uh, this is before Passover and before the Red Sea, so my question is going to come after that. But what was your comment about when they call out that is the evidence of their slavishness? Yeah, because... What they're called to do is to be 
the people representing and living under God's law for all people. But what do they do? They keep, you know, they're enslaved and they don't like it. But on the other hand, every time things get bad in the desert, and even during while they're still in Egypt and Moses and God are conducting his, their negotiations with Pharaoh, is they cry out, no, leave us here and safe. And so the question before them is physical security and survival and, you know, and enough to eat against service to the Lord and faith in the Lord. And, you know, the Lord feeds them by miracles, and then they cry out against that and want a different diet. Hmm. And he gives them one, right? So there are people that are not ready to enter into the promised land and be ready and be an example before the nations of God's people. The thing that has always struck me about these books, Larry Arn, is that when they leave, they quickly, you know, how can you forget the Passover? How can you forget the Red Sea? How can you forget manna and, and quail and water from a rock? How, how does that actually happen? Well, but that's, uh, isn't, first of all, that's easy to understand as a parable. Um, like, uh, you, you know Victor Hansen, I bet you've had him on your show. Many, many, many times. And, yeah. of course, and one of his favorite themes, and he's a wise man, is, you know, when people get rich, it's not really good for their discipline. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know? And what what happens, you know? And, I mean, in your own life, I can tell you about my own. I live under, I have a very high-pressure job, and I work really, really hard. And, you know, the week after commencement, I'm usually a whining dog <laughs> because, by the way, I don't want to work anymore, but I got to. And then, you know, by the time it finally calms down, if it ever does, getting close to July, I usually have a week where I'm just useless. And, and what's that about? You know, what's that about is pressure, when it's relieved, relaxes discipline in people. And the Jews are an example of that. And they are and their story. Because remember, the story is couched in terms, and think how long ago these books were written. You know, that's 3,000, 4,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. It is couched in terms from the outset, from the earliest books, that these are lessons for all mankind and to be a necessary blessing to all mankind. It seems to me the story becomes more understandable when it's like that. And let's say the story is false. Why has it survived? Why? Why? And it may be because it contains a meaning that has a permanent relevance. Now, I'm sure you hear the object, but it's also a convenient way to get us to where we are. And it's a good myth. And I'm sure the nation surrounding Israel say that's just it. It's just a claim on land that was doctored up in order to justify this. But it, it doesn't necessarily ought to guide us. So why does it have a right to guide us now? Well, um, you know, they're, they're, C.S. Lewis writes about this one time in a way that I like. He says that, uh, and I'll paraphrase him, he said, I used to think that I couldn't believe something, especially something about God, unless it made sense to me. And I still think that, he said. <laughs> so, you know, after he'd become a Christian, he still thinks it, right? In other words, the first reason you'd believe it is because it makes sense. And, you know, the, the second thing I want to talk about is the Ten Commandments. And one question you can ask is, do they make sense? And, indeed, if you think that through for a minute, uh, it's not that they're incredible. 
it's that they are common sense. And by the way, the forgetting of them does carry heavy penalties, does it not? Yep, yep. And so they're worth talking about for a minute, because remember, what goes on in the Pentateuch, right, is there's this story of creation. I said that at the beginning of this, in in Genesis, a story of creation, which is less specific and more shrouded in the midst of what, you know, beginning before any time. And then there's the story of an establishment of a people. And the rest of the Pentateuch is really about that and about the provision of their laws, the laws for these pe- this people. And during break, you can go, America, to Exodus chapter 20. Uh, we will return to the Ten Commandments um, as they were first given when we return to the Hugh Hewitt Show. 44 minutes after the hour, America, it's Hugh Hewitt with Dr. Larry Arn, the Hillsdale Dialogues this week covering the, first, the, the, the last four of the first five books of the Old Testament, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And we are at the Ten Commandments, Larry Arn. Take it away. Okay, well, there are two tables, and the two tables are interesting, both because of the distinction between them and because of an overlap. Uh, First of all, the story, the blessing that God gives the, the Jewish people, the Israelites, in the desert is not survival and preparation to, to, to rule independently themselves in a land. That's a, those are powerful blessings. The blessing he gives them is the law. And the law is a way to live. And this way to live in the first table has mainly to do with man's relationship with God. And in the second table, there are two tables, two tablets, right, and there are ten, so there are five on each. And the second table has mainly to do with man's relationship with other men. And so the, the, uh, uh, the first table establishes a radically vertical relationship between man and God. And by the way, the whole law does that, the whole teaching of the Jewish law. By the way, the Declaration of Independence does that. Look at the references to God in the Declaration of Independence and ask yourself, who does it presume to be superior? Sure. So God is above us. He is one. Nothing is to be above him. He is so great that you are not to use his name except rightly, never wrongfully. His name, you're to be shy of speaking it. Cautions in the New Testament echo this when there are cautions against swearing oaths on God. Mm -hmm. So that's the first table. And the second table is about how you ought to treat other people. And it, by the way, you could summarize this as do unto others as you would have them do unto you. In other words, it's the golden rule. You're not to kill them. You're not to commit adultery on your loved ones, your your wife. You're not to steal, and you're not to lie, and you're not to envy precious things that your neighbors have. And, and uh, you know, the golden rule goes beyond these things, but both establish a profound regard for others. And so the ethics of the law is a common sense ethics. God is greater than man. Proper conduct of one man to another under the providence of God requires respect, understanding of the equality of men. So the, the, the Ten Commandments are, by the way, the fact that we have a controversy about them today, about, about displaying them, about whether they're just a religious thing or not, 
the, the miraculous thing about them or the marvel about them is how little they are a religious thing, really. Mm-hmm. Because if you understand the way the beings work, you know that the implication in the arrangements of the human person, in the soul and the body, in the better and the worse parts of the, of the person, and in the relationship of man to the other animals, points up toward God. And the direction of God is upwards. And this great teaching, remember how remarkable it is that this law would be given to this people, and it would establish a God that's a God for all people, and a God that demands good comportment and behavior from one man to another. I I want to skip to the end of Deuteronomy, because the man who brought those commandments down, Moses, ends up denied Larry Arn the opportunity to enter into the promised land. There's this uh, incredible, he, he screws up in the course of his life of leadership and does and doubts, and the penalty that he pays is he does not enter into the promised land, and he sings his song of Moses, and he gives his blessing. But it, what's that tell us about God? Uh, well, he's a very demanding God, right? And Moses, his agent, and you know, Moses got a lot from God. I mean, it's a hard duty. Moses is a symbol of the chosen people. You're going to get this incredible privilege, and you're not always going to like it very much. But it's going to be good for you. And you know, the wrong that Moses did was to lose faith in God before the cries of his people when they were thirsty. And so that that story, by the way, is not told very clearly about exactly what the wrong was. I think it's at the Rock of Meribah. Right. But, but... It later accounts that when it's when it's you know used as a judgment against Moses, what he did was he forgot to do the one thing his ministry demanded of him, and that was to trust to God to repair the problem, and uh, and so that was a pride, right, and a or a failure of faith, and so the punishment for that was you can look, but you cannot go. Now, he succeeded by Joshua, and we may talk about Joshua and the balance of the Old Testament story next week. But a leader, a land that is led and a people that is led by a great leader like this at the end when that leader leaves them, how often do they lose their way, uh, Larry Arn? And, and are you surprised that the Jews did not? Well, uh, you know, by the way, they did, of course, but not immediately. Not immediately. And uh, that's because, by the way, the people that walked across the Jordan River toward Jericho was a very different crowd than the ones that left Cairo, you know, because they'd been uh, worked on for a while. And there had been trials, you know, who is on the Lord's side, right? And Joshua steps forward and says, I am on the Lord's side. And there was enormous pressure not to be there. So he he had many opportunities to to, uh, prove himself. The the hard thing about succession is that... um, um, it's you know King Lear, the Shakespeare play. One of its central themes is great statesmen cannot get succession right. Yep. Because the excellences they possess are rare and not likely present in the next generation. But remember that the Moses to Joshua story—that's one example. But the but the story of the Jewish people in the rest of the Old Testament is full of counterexamples. Yes, and we will come back to those next week. What are we going to do next week? By the way, we're going to cover the whole entire Old Testament. Or we could, yeah. All right, that's what we'll do, and we'll we'll make sure that you are well and truly launched. And if you are intrigued by this or the previous conversations on the Iliad. 
the Odyssey, Genesis, they are all available at hugh4hillsdale.com, H-U-G-H-F-O-R, hillsdale.com, or go directly to hillsdale.edu, sign up for the Western Civilization courses. I'll be back to conclude this week's broadcast on The Hugh Hewitt Show. Stay tuned. Tarzana Joe, straight ahead.